Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No Trump. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaigns. Oh wait, unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with our weekly update here on social media. Thanks for joining us this week. A lot to talk about. We've got so much going on. Uh, new lawsuits about uh, January 6th abuses, illicit spying, it looks like, on American citizens. We are um, honored to represent a Marine hero in federal court. Uh, you're not going to believe his story. But plus, we have new Fauci documents, Fauci China documents that have come out that um, are, are going to shock you. Maybe won't surprise you, but they still will shock you in the sense that uh, it shows even even further or more extensive collaboration between the Chinese and U.S. taxpayer agencies than has been previously uncovered. Again, thanks to Judicial Watch. Uh, thank to thanks to Judicial Watch's heavy lifting. First up, though, I want to talk about this new Trump lawsuit. He filed a lawsuit. He is the lead plaintiff. It's a class action lawsuit against big tech over uh, the uh, censorship and suppression of uh, him and other American citizens. There are named plaintiffs in some of the cases. And of course, then there's this broader class. I guess I would be a member of the class and you might be a member of the class. Judicial Watch might be a member of the class uh, in terms of being victimized improperly by big tech. And one of the arguments he makes in the lawsuit, and I, I, I'm glad he's pushing this because what you see is <laughs> the lawsuit is announced, but then all these lawyers come in who hate Trump uh, or are just being lawyers and just being difficult <laughs> and start um, spit, you know, uh, shooting spitballs at the lawsuit. And I know that's always been the case that so we've seen that with Judicial Watch lawsuits. You, you, you file aggressive lawsuits. And there's always a lawyer who will complain about it. And if they're partisans, they doubly complain. So second, so uh, the lawsuit alleges that these companies essentially are avatars of the government and they've been coerced or operating essentially as agents of the government in the censorship. And that and that is, I think, fundamental to the challenge. And what I like about that is it comports with what Judicial Watch has uncovered. Because you may recall just last week and in weeks previously, I've talked about Judicial Watch, litiga uh, Judicial Watch Freedom of Information Act requests and litigation in California and Iowa that show, let's say specifically in California, the California Secretary of State intervened in the election, in my view, to get Judicial Watch censored off of YouTube. There was a YouTube video uh, discussion, uh, discussing concerns we had about the elections. And Judicial Watch litigation about it that was uh, that resulted in California, specifically L.A. County, having to clean up potentially up to one point six million names from the rolls. So we have proof positive that the government colluded and collaborated with big tech officials to delete and censor and suppress information, not only of Judicial Watch, but other. And you know, of course, it was the video I was I was given the video on behalf of Judicial Watch. So it was me, too. 
but other citizens as well. So Trump is righter than right in challenging the idea that this is just all for private activity by uh, these big tech companies. And there's nothing to see here in terms of government collaboration. You can go and look at the lawsuits online. I'm not sure what the website addresses are. I'm sure you'll be able to figure it out by searching online. But I encourage you to take a look at the lawsuits. Uh, and I'm glad that the president uh, has taken these steps. And, and, you know, and it goes you to show you that, you know, Trump, you know, uniquely likes to step up and be brave in ways that other politicians don't want to be brave because we've been victimized by this censorship. And President Trump put him, you know, when you're the lead litigant in, case, in a case, you know, you're putting yourself on the line in terms of the court. Uh, so kudos to him for taking the leadership here uh, because Republicans on the Hill haven't been doing it at all. So uh, we'll see what happens with that lawsuit. But I just want you to and I just I want to use it as an opportunity to reaffirm that Judicial Watch has proven a core element of judicial of, of uh, President Trump's legal allegations, if not specifically, but generally, is that a lot of the censorship that we're concerned about is as a result of the government getting these corporations to censor us because they don't the government doesn't like the speech as opposed to the corporations themselves have a particular interest one way or another. So I wanted to briefly uh, touch on that uh, because I know it's in the news and it's a big issue for regular Americans who are concerned about politics that everything they say can and will be used against them online in the sense that the big tech companies go after you if you say the wrong thing. It chills speech, it threatens speech. It's really at odds with the American way, in my view. Uh, another Another bit, speaking of tech censorship, it's been the tech censorship of questions about COVID, questions about where the Wuhan virus came from. Was it a lab originated virus or was it naturally occurring? Uh, and lab originated, I mean, out of the lab in the Wuhan Institute of Virology or somewhere else in China, uh, where they may have been engaged in, it looks like they were engaged in, gain of function research that transforms viruses that are not communicable among human beings into viruses that are communicable and therefore much more potentially dangerous. And the big question is, is this virus the result of gain of function research that accidentally or uh, through other means got released from the lab? Now, if you were to raise questions about that uh, last year or just as recently as a few months ago, you face oppression and censorship from big government, big tech. They take your videos down, they take your comments down, they suppress your information. But now uh, the science, uh, you know, there have been too many scientists who have said, look, this, this Wuhan lab leak theory is credible. We don't know exactly for sure if it's the case, but to say that you're not even allowed to uh, ask questions about it, that's not good science. So big tech is trying to ease back on this. They're still trying to suppress it, but they ease back on it. And one of the big issues is what did Dr. Fauci know and when did he know it? And the documents the Judicial Watch has uncovered and that others have uncovered show that early on, the uh, federal government, specifically Fauci's agency, was very much concerned about the potential that U.S. government funding went to the Wuhan Institute and was involved in gain-of-function research and may have had a direct or indirect involvement or resulted indirectly or directly in the release of this COVID virus, this novel coronavirus. 
Uh, now, do the documents show that the leak took place? It was a it was a, a leak from a, 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 the Institute of uh, Virology in Wuhan. No, uh, but there's nothing inconsistent with it. And certainly they show that they were more nervous about it in the background than they were telling us publicly. Now, we, uh, through a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, previously uncovered that Fauci's testimony that only $600,000 went to the Wuhan Institute through NI, uh, National Institute for Allergic and Infectious Diseases Agency grants um, that were given to this EcoHealth Alliance. He said the monies that went to Wuhan were only $600,000. Well, Judicial Watch exposed that was not accurate, that testimony. It was over $800,000. And new documents from this same lawsuit show uh, that, the, that the collaboration, not only with the EcoHealth Alliance, was much more substantial than previously known, but also the collaboration with Chinese researchers on a host of other issues was much, really quite deep. Over 2,000, it looks like, China-related grants on a whole host of issues. And the EcoHealth Alliance, let me get the material up here. Uh, there were at least nine grants related to, essentially, risk of viral emergence in from bats, risk of bat coronavirus emergence. You know, and all those studies, you know, none of that may necessarily be illegitimate other than yeah, I don't know why we work. Do we trust the Chinese enough to work with them on situations like this? And I think there's good reason not to. But the question is, did this type of virus, this type of research, either directly here or indirectly from it, result in gain of function research that uh, resulted in the coronavirus being released? I don't know. But certainly there's more here than we knew about thanks to Judicial Watch suing. We asked for it last year, this material, and it's taken a year in a federal lawsuit to get out. But the documents also show that we, I didn't know this, Fauci had an official in the embassy in China who was monitoring quite closely the Wuhan Institute of Virology. At one point, the emails show, as she went over there, they wouldn't let her take pictures in the Institute. They wouldn't let her take pictures, but she did take pictures of it from the outside, which I thought was very interesting. I hadn't seen a picture like that before. You can go to our website and look it up. Uh, and uh, the other documents show that, um, and this stuff is this, if it weren't so scary, it'd be comical. You had the top, top official, I think number two, who essentially was running the lab, I think at one point, of the Wuhan Institute, write an NIH official asking for help on disinfected ideas for the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is the email. It was from a director, Wang Jiming, who uh, was writing a uh, something uh, to Cliff Kuhn, who was the deputy director of NIAD, AID. So he was immediately under or reported to Mr. Dr. Fauci. And Jiming writes him, I'm writing to you to ask your help. Our laboratory is under operation without pathogens. And we are now looking for the disinfectants for decontamination of airtight suits and surface decontamination, indoor decontamination. We have tried several ones to, he says do, but he made a mistake, to determine their antiviral efficacy and corrosion to pipeline and wastewater treatment equipment. Unfortunately, we have found 
a good candidate. I think he means to say we haven't found a good candidate. I hope you can give us some help to give us some suggestions for the choices disinfectants used in P4, B, P4 laboratory, meaning that highly secure laboratory. What kind of disinfectants for decontamination of airtight protective clothes? What kind of disinfectants for surface decontamination indoor? What kind of disinfectants for air decontamination indoor? What kind of disinfectants for infectious materials indoor? What kind of approval? What is the approval procedure for the choice of disinfectants in laboratory? I'm sorry to disturb you, and I really hope you can give us some suggestions and comment. And the guy writes back from all of the EDA, this isn't me. I'll send it, I, I'll send it to someone in my office who has more expertise. And he sends it along to colleagues, it looks like. But they've got this, they've got this sensitive lab already in operation. He says there are no pathogens around, but they haven't figured out how to de decontaminate it. I tell them to use Lysol, but what do I know? Evidently a little bit more than they do. I don't know. So we've got them, we've got this significant, to me, this is an evidence of a significant biosafety concern. Uh, you have to wonder whether or not they know what they're doing there. Did it stop us from working with them? No. When you look at the emails here, it's pretty clear our people in China were very concerned about what was going on in the Wuhan Institute. They wanted to know what was happening. Uh, there's redacted material about what they were concerned about or what was happening there. Uh, and uh, as I said, they were trying to take pictures on the inside. So despite that concern, they kept on giving it money. Or maybe it was because of that concern they gave it money so they'd have a way of figuring out what they were doing. I don't know. But this is uh, material that is of worldwide interest. Uh, it shows uh, over 2,000 research grants tied to China. 2,000. I don't know about you. I'm suspicious of that level of, <laughs> of, of coordination. And they suggest, again, the documents suggest that the Wuhan lab had major biosafety issues and the American government was carefully monitoring its activities from a national security perspective, even while funding it. And as far as I'm concerned, Dr. Fauci and his colleagues have some more explaining to do. So uh, these pages, uh, they're only 300 pages or so. So you can look at them yourself. Go and look at all the um, go and look at all of the. Uh, the funding, it's listed. I don't think the numbers are there. So they didn't give us the numbers. At least they haven't given them to us yet. But you can look at the emails. You can you can see what was going on behind the scenes with respect to the Wuhan Institute and our relationship with China bio, uh, you know, biohazard research. I don't know what you want to call it, viral research. Pretty extraordinary. It was deep. They go, went back even further than has previously been acknowledged. So once again, this is the result of your support because we're able to engage in this type of litigation. We're able to push and push and push and pull and pull and pull documents out of the government because you support our work. And if you want to be educated about what we were doing at Wuhan, this is how you find out about it by looking at these materials and frankly supporting 
more work like this that Judicial Watch is engaged in. Next up is January 6th. As you know, the left and um, and specifically the Democrats, uh, for political purposes, quite, quite obviously, uh, is using January 6th and the disturbance at the U.S. Capitol as an excuse to suppress its political opposition, restrict its First Amendment rights, and in some cases, jail people based on their First Amendment protected speech. And Judicial Watch has been concerned because Obviously, we don't support, and it goes without saying, despite what the left says, we don't support violence. The left uses violence and has supported it as an instrumentality over the last few years, especially to target its political opposition. But the question is, are people, uh, is January 6th being being used as an excuse to further abuse the civil liberties of American citizens? And specifically political opponents or people who are critical of Joe Biden or people who ask questions about the wrong things. And it looks like that's the case. We have a new lawsuit, and this is an interesting one, against the FBI. So we actually we're suing the Justice Department for FBI documents. The you know, the FBI would have you believe they're this uh, uh, dishonestly uh, mislead you into thinking they're this separate agency that is beholden to no one. When in fact, they're run by the Justice Department and the Attorney General ultimately is responsible for it. So we sued the FBI for the records on the alleged transfer of bank financial data of every person in the DC area on January 6th. We asked because there was a report that happened. There was a new, there were several news articles uh, that, uh, uh, Bank of America specifically had um, actively but secretly engaged in the hunt for extremists in cooperation with the government. And following the events of January 6th, gave the FBI financial records to their customers who fit the following profile. Customers confirmed as transacting, transacting either through bank account debit cards or credit card purchases in Washington, D.C. between 1-5 and 1-6. That will cover everyone in the city, practically speaking, potentially, who's a Bank of America customer. And I don't believe it was just limited to Bank of America. Purchases made for hotel, Airbnb, RSVPs in D.C., Virginia, and Maryland on 1-6. Any purchases of weapons or weapon-related merchants at a weapons-related merchant between 1-7 and their upcoming suspected stay in D.C. area around Inauguration Day. So they were investigating People even after one six, not not because they'd done anything there. It's just they wanted to know who was purchasing guns. That's a dragnet, and of course, airline-related purchases since one six. So we asked for documents about that. That's pretty extraordinary. Did the bank do it because the FBI requested? Some reports suggest that there was no subpoena. There was no quote letter. National Security Letter or otherwise, requesting this information, there was this data dump. If you were a Bank of America customer or a customer of another bank, perhaps, we don't know, you had your private financial data sent over to the FBI, who then could root through it. Were they looking at your financial data? Were you visiting Washington, D.C.? Are you a D.C. resident or do you live in the area? 
and you spent money on groceries or you went to the CVS or you you were just you were visiting and you purchased and you were all of a sudden got an FBI file practically speaking on you is that what happened but we want to know and we asked for the records under the Freedom of Information Act uh, they gave us the Stonewall they gave us a song and dance even more so than usual so we sued. And in June, I think we sued um, a little bit before June. June 8th, the court overseeing the lawsuit ordered the FBI to respond substantively to Judicial Watch's request within 30 days. And this is the song and dance. On June 17th, the FBI responded saying that the request was too broad and as for further clarification and or narrowing of the request, it wasn't either, but we, you know, we got to do what we got to do to move the case along. On June 24th, we responded by sending another news article detailing Bank of America's handling over, ha handing over transaction records to the FBI. And they said, okay, we understand what you mean now, right? And you know what their response was? We can't confirm or deny whether we have any documents, whether the records even exist, which is a, we get that, we get that sometimes in national security cases where, um, you know, CIA uses that for reasons that I think might be obvious to you. Hey, are you spying on, do you have a telephone tap of person X, spy X? They said, we can't confirm or deny that. We're not even going to tell you whether we have the ability to do that. But here, they're saying they have no records about their communications, the transfer of records with banks. Or they can't confirm or deny they have any records. We're not asking, and I would presume, you know, we're not going to get someone's personal financial data. But the mere transaction is a state secret, practically speaking. Not in my view. So the court's going to have to figure out whether he'll accept this. Uh, but isn't that interesting? So the question is, did the FBI engage in what looks to be an unprecedented abuse of the financial privacy of countless innocent Americans, along with the big banks? And the FBI stonewalling and non-denial denial of this really speaks volumes, don't you think? It really speaks volumes. Or speak volumes, I should say. So we're in the lawsuit. We're trying to get the information. You know, and, and I see Nancy Pelosi, they've created this select committee. This is the real investigation. This is, I think, our fifth or sixth lawsuit on basic January 6th information. We've asked for records and our requests in our lawsuit, uh, in my view, forced the DC medical examiner to finally admit that police officer died of natural causes and wasn't murdered like the left pretended. We're still asking for records. We sued for information on the shooting of Ashley Babbitt. I mean, the secrecy there is political and scandalous. Records on Nancy Pelosi's uh, communications with the Pentagon about uh, the use of the military, undermining President Trump, 
We're asking for the videos that have been hidden from the American people about the disturbance on January 6th. All of this Judicial Watch is doing the heavy lifting on as Congress pretends uh, to be really interested in this while, while, while actually subverting our ability to get the information. Congress is the one hiding the videos. Congress is the one hiding the information about the death of Ashley Babbitt. Congress needs to be investigating, specifically Nancy Pelosi and company, on January 6th. But it's gotten worse. It's expanded beyond January 6th. This, the illicit spying. I'm not sure what we're going to find in this banking case we have about the FBI's taking your banking records. But it's not just about January 6th, the deep state's interested in. They don't like you protesting or being concerned about COVID. And it looks like they're spying on you about that. So there was this news report. We didn't uh, come up with it. Let me pull this one up. From the Postal Service. I didn't know this. I guess I don't know everything. I'm not a leftist government bureaucrat. I don't pretend to know everything about everything. Uh, uh, that the Postal Service has this special internet covert operations program that's capable of collecting and tracking uh, American citizens' social media posts. Did you know the post office is capable and is willing to, evidently, according to this report, spy on your social media postings? And in this case, Yahoo News reported uh, that the records were uh, a creation or with the agency within this within the post office called the United States Postal Inspection Service Internet Covert Operations Program, which monitored significant activity regarding planned anti-lockdown protests occurring internationally and domestically on March 20th, 2021. So says Yahoo News. They got a March 16th government bulletin marked as law enforcement sensitive and distributed throughout through the Homeland Security's uh, Department of Homeland Security Fusion Centers. So they're watching social media platforms about lawful protests under the First Amendment, spying on you. Again, we asked for the records about what the heck was going on here. We asked for all, and I'm not going to, there were, let's see, one, two, three, seven different requests about what was going on here. And of course, they failed to respond to the request the Postal Service did. So the Postal Service, they can't get mail into your mailbox the way it's supposed to either on time or sometimes at all, is evidently spying on you. And we want to know, did the Biden administration weaponize, again, the United States Postal Service, like the left has done with the FBI, the Justice Department, and other agencies, to improperly spy on Americans? That's what this FOIA lawsuit is about. And this is another example of why Judicial Watch is important. So when did this story come out? April of 2021. So, you know, you think it would be a pretty big deal if there's a public report that the Postal Service is spying on American social media postings. I'm not aware of anyone doing anything about it. Are you? Have you heard about this other than my telling you about it? You may have. I mean, let's be, I understand a lot of you are pretty sharp and follow this stuff. And, you know, I remember when it happened, too. But obviously, most Americans don't know about this, even people who follow things closely, because 
The government, including Congress, has zero interest in protecting your civil liberties. And I know there's some people who have a little bit of interest in protecting your civil liberties or in government. But practically speaking, there's nothing the government does in terms of abusing your civil liberties that Congress is terribly interested in confronting. And certainly the federal agencies aren't doing it. And of course, the media doesn't care about it unless, of course, they're the targets of it. And even then, it depends only if they are the targets. Other media being the targets of illegal spying, they don't care about, i.e. Tucker Carlson. Which, by the way, it's been confirmed the NSA had read his emails. Practically speaking, it's been confirmed that the NSA has read his emails and leaked them. He was unmasked, just like Trump was, General Flynn was, General Sessions was, and they leaked spy information to the media. That's essentially been confirmed. And the, what's the media's response? He deserved it. I'll say it once and I'll say it again. The left doesn't care about the Constitution. The left doesn't care about your civil liberties. They see those civil liberties as a tool sometimes to get what they want, to protect themselves. But when it comes to being, it being broadly applied to everyone in the United States, they don't believe in that. They don't believe we have the same rights. Their political opponents have the same rights or any rights under the Constitution. They don't believe it. They'd be willing to jail and worse their political opponents. I mean, I've always thought that generally about the even the kind of the moderate left. But now you've got this rising communist left throughout the land that is threatening our republic. And because no one's been punished, practically speaking, no one's faced any jail time, let alone a significant grand jury questioning session. They're just continuing to do it. And in fact, it's getting worse. So you don't need to worry just about the FBI, dear citizen. You need to worry about the post office spying on you as well. All because... You object to lockdowns and may want to go to a protest here and there. Unbelievable. I guess it's not unbelievable, but it is outrageous. And I'm just, I am glad we are doing it. I tell you, this is why I love Judicial Watch. Because we all see these stories, right? And we get outraged and so what do you can do about it? Well, we can at least try to figure out what went on. And maybe pressure in to stop it by shining the light on it. Because they'll never stop if we don't know what they're up to. <laughs> and if it weren't for Judicial Watch, none of this would come out. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. So as you know, Judicial Watch sues government agencies to get access to records. We sue government agencies to stop misconduct and to protect our elections and to expose what's going on. You name it, Judicial Watch does it. That work also includes representing victims of government abuse. And we have one new case that I think is going to be very interesting to you. We're representing a uh, retired Marine major, Fred Galvin, who is an American hero. There's no, there's no way to say it other than he's a gosh darn American hero. And uh, he's been wrongly denied uh, what I would call, what we technically call a retroactive promotion, despite his being a hero. And we're in federal court for him. So that's that's the like that that's the headline. Uh, 
what went on behind the scenes or what this, what happened to him and his colleagues is going to set your hair on fire. Now, Major Galvin was the commander of an elite U.S. Marine Corps Special Operations Unit that was falsely accused of war crimes in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan's in the news. Biden's uh, le- uh, taking our uh, military out of Afghanistan. But this is one of the stories of Afghanistan. It's it's the politicians who, when our troops are doing their job, abandon them to the bad guys, practically speaking. And he was accused of war crimes and he was fully exonerated over 12 years. Let's say, no, yeah, 12 years later. The incident occurred in 2007. He was hung out the dry and it wasn't until 2019 that he was exonerated, but he was still denied, as I said, his retroactive promotion to lieutenant colonel by the Marine Corps in, 20, by the Marine Corps in 2020, despite an otherwise magnificent service record. So this is the story. On March 4th, 2007, Galvin and 29 members of the Marine Special Operations Company, Foxtrot, Fox Company, the first combat unit of the U.S. Marine Corps, the U.S. Marine Corps Forces Special Operations Command, MARSOC. So remember, the Special Operations Forces, uh, are, that's, that's kind of, it's semi-new, right? I say semi-new, I know it's a long time, it's almost 20 years now since they've been started being effectively used. But 2007, prior to that, we didn't, they didn't have something like that at least in the Marine Corps. And he was the first commander of the first combat unit. So that tells you what his colleagues thought of his leadership ability. And they were going through the Afghan village of Badikot, K-O-T. It's near the Pakistan border. They were in a convoy. And a suicide bomber, driving a fuel and explosive packed van, approached the convoy at a high rate of speed. The van detonated, then fighters of both sides of the road opened fire on the convoy. Fox Company fought back and escaped, returning to their base with only one minor casualty. So thank God for that. The Afghan government, though, numerous media outlets and others falsely accused Major Galvin and the unit of war crimes in responding to the attack. And even the U.S. military, after a horribly flawed investigation, called for Galvin and six other Marines to char- be charged with dereliction of duty and negligent homicide. Major Galvin was relieved of command and Fox Company was redeployed out of, Afgan- out of Afghanistan. But Major Galvin and Fox Company were eventually exonerated by a court of inquiry that, in an historic finding, found the Marines acted properly and instead faulted both the Air Force colonel who investigated the incidents and senior U.S. military leadership. The court of inquiry also found that the Air Force colonel's findings and conclusions ran counter to the weight of the evidence and faulted senior U.S. leaders for being unable or unwilling to respond appropriately to what was described as an enemy information operation. Again, falsely accusing 
U.S. troops, in this case, Marines, who are just doing, doing their job and defending themselves, of engaging in war crimes. The finding. The redeployment of Fox Company was based in large point, a large part on unsubstantiated allegations related to the March 2000 incident. The decision to redeploy Fox Company, again, out of Afghanistan, was influenced by the high level of command, media, and government attention focused on the incident. So he was railroaded. And he was due to be considered for a promotion. And he was exceptionally well qualified as compared to his peers. And those of you who've been in the military, you know the labyrinth promotion process there. And he fit the bill completely to be promoted. And they did not select him to, for promotion. And he was forced into retirement. In 2019, a U.S. Navy panel ordered that at first uh, fitness reports be removed from his uh, file. I mean, not only did they go after him on that 2000 event, there was another issue where, you know, he objected to someone running the, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but essentially drop bombs in a dangerous manner near and around our troops and civilians. And he turned out he was right to complain and was worried about what was going on there. So they convened a special selection board. And again, they denied his promotion. This is what we say. Galvin had served in several key leadership billets, a significant marker for promotion. He had extensive combat experience and had been, quote, forward deployed, unquote, for more than three years, which also are significant markers for promotion. He had received multiple awards, including a bronze star with the Combat V, and received glowing recommendations recommending him for promotion. Plaintiff also completed, plaintiff being Major Gallon, his professional military education promotion requirement by attending the Marine Corps Command and Staff College and completing the intermediate level school in 2008. So you don't need to be in the military to know this is the type of guy you got to promote. And he was never provided, a, a, he was never provided an explanation. Never provided an explanation. There was never any attempt to make a rational connection to the facts found and the choices made as to why he wasn't promoted. So, you know, I'm, I'm giving you the summary version of this, but you, can you imagine being Major Galvin and the men under him who served, what they went through? It's now 2021, and they still, at least specifically Major Galvin, still being hung out to dry, still being abused by the military leadership. 
And this is the comment I made in the, in the press release. And, and I feel strongly about this. The Pentagon's continued refusal to, provo- to promote Major Galvin is an absolute disgrace. The American hero that Galvin is, he gave years of his life and his good name to serve our country selflessly and has been denied a well-deserved promotion because of anti-military politics, false narratives, and the cynical choices of his superiors. Judicial Watch is honored to go to court on behalf of Major Galvin, a brave warrior and patriot who first and foremost acted to protect the lives of the soldiers under his command. I encourage you to look up Major Galvin on the internet. Uh, If you're a Marine, you probably already know who he is. And the big, even even the hostile media had to acknowledge he was exonerated. In front page stories, and if I recall, the Washington Post, even. We have a great video linked uh, that we can share with you below that uh, provides more detail. So I don't know about you, but this is about as important a lawsuit as anything else we do. Don't you agree? Don't you agree? What he's gone through, what his colleagues have gone through. And you know, it's just the tip of the iceberg. And I, and you know, if you've been in the military, you're a veteran. I'm not a veteran. You could tell by my unfamiliarity with certain terms here. I don't pretend to be a veteran. But the least we can do at Judicial Watch is protect those who served, who have been abused. And this is not the first case we've had in this regard. We represented someone, we represent someone else, but now we're essentially as a state, really, over uh, the military just simply refusing to give this poor person, he's now dead, a Purple Heart, even though he was shot at during Fort Hood. This happens time and time again. If something's politically inconvenient, they don't care about you in the military. It's too often. So this is a big case. That's an important case. It's about the way we treated our people in Afghanistan and how we uh, allowed our enemy essentially to dictate how we treat our people in Afghanistan. Inexcusable, unacceptable, and the abuse still continues. And so we're proud to be in court representing him now. So that being said, there's a lot going on. More is coming. Thank you for your support of Judicial Watch, and I'll see you here next week on Judicial Watch's Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's Weekly Update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.